0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. Twenty percent of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well With All. Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. Oscar nominees are in. Will this year's Academy Awards be another Oscar so white night? Diversity in Hollywood apparently doesn't apply to Latinx people. And finding a mainstream audience for shows targeted to an LGBTQ audience. It's our pop culture roundtable. Later in the show, from humble beginnings to football superstardom, by the time Aaron Hernandez made it to the New England Patriots, he seemed to have a dream life. But out of the public eye, it was a different story.
3: I feel that this is the most dramatic murder story in the last 25 years, and I include O.J. in that.
0: Best-selling author James Patterson has captured it all in his compelling real-life thriller, all-American murder, the rise and fall of Aaron Hernandez, the superstar whose life ended on death row. But first, joining me in the studio, Michael Jeffries, Associate Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Hello, Michael. Hi, Callie. And Rachel Rubin, Professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Callie. Let's jump right in to the Oscars. The nominations were just a couple of days ago. I want to play a clip of Andy Serkis and Tiffany Haddish reading the nominees for Best Picture and Best Director. Here are the nine films selected as Best Picture nominees.
1: Get out. Sean McKittrick, Jason Blum, Edward H. Ham Jr., and Jordan Peele producers. Lady
0: Bird. Scott Rudin, Eli Bush, and Evelyn O'Neill producers. <laughs> Here are the nominees for achievement in directing. Get out. Jordan Peele. <laughs> Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig. Now, the reason people are clapping, obviously this is good work by both Greta Gerwig and Jordan Peele, but this was a part of the surprise nominees in these categories. Greta Gerwig is a white woman who wrote her own script and pushed it through and cast the film herself to great acclaim. And Jordan Peele, same thing, for Get Out, his film that, You know, what was made for like a dollar and ended up making $300 million. So, Michael, what do you think about that?
2: I think it's a really important moment uh, for the Oscars and, and for the Academy. These two films in particular are vital for our kind of pop cultural uh, sense of of what can be hot, what can be profitable. And in particular, the Peel film is interesting not only because of the racial dynamics of the film and the race of the director, producer, and writer, but also because of the genre of the film, where they're kind of taking something close to a horror movie more seriously, perhaps, than the Academy has been shown to do in the past. So these are all uh, breakthroughs, no question about it. So is this a collision
0: of Me Too and Oscar So White, and we're seeing some results?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you can't possibly understand the attention that these films received, even before the awards were announced, without taking into account the Oscar So White movement, which has been going on for years, and more recently, Me Too. But also, like, we shouldn't dismiss the genuinely new dimensions and contributions of these filmmakers. It took both, right? It took films that were showing the Academy something it hadn't seen before and all the attention and energy that was spent on the politics, the cultural politics of the moment. Um, so it's clear that I think both of those movements helped
0: open the window so they could see something new because otherwise we get the same old thing, Rachel. Or. We- Seems like that anyway.
1: Right. No, I, I I absolutely agree with that and I hope that we will start applying those sort of same insights to non-celebrity situations. But, you know, one of the things that really I appreciated very much about Get Out in particular was, well, first of all, it seems to combine both of the things because the movie is obviously making just as many references to Stepford Wives as it is to horror movies. And, you know, he's been direct about saying that. But the other thing about it is it did sort of pull in audiences that we're not used to going to horror movies. And one of the ways it does that is by sort of literalizing what happens in some horror movies. You know, and I just remember growing up in Baltimore and horror movies are very popular in African-American neighborhoods and you would go to see one and a black character would come on screen and everybody in the audience would start saying oh, he's going to die, he's going to die, the black guy showed up, right? And so it just sort of shows, you know, how um, culture can function at different levels. When I went to see Get Out, the audience was just full of people who were very clearly sort of not used to the genre, and it really did reach in. All of which is just to say, like, take what we've learned from those two movies and apply them in other places.
0: I just want to note that when we had discussed Get Out just in our usual conversation some months ago, both of you noted how... Weird it was because so many people were going, it was very popular, and the question was, do people know what they're going to see? Because this is kind of a heavy film dealing with some, ser- you know, it's funny and it's horror, but it, it had some serious issues, and and we really couldn't answer the question at the time, but it remained popular, and even to the point of this platform getting noticed. It's
2: uh, pretty big. No question, <laughs> and, I, and I think, you know, there are plenty of people who have seen it more than once, and that's what I was talking about with respect to the artistic dimensions of the film. As Peel has sort of been drawn out to talk more and more about some of the symbolism and the hidden messages of the film, this was a case where every frame had so much thought put into it. It really is a masterpiece kind of on its own aesthetic terms, right, by the terms that people usually judge the artistic quality of any film, horror, comedy, uh, drama, what, what have you. So I think its sustainability is not just because the sort of narrative and the content was so powerful and provocative, but because people appreciate the artistry of the film itself, and we can't lose sight of that.
1: You know, and another thing I would also like to say that's really important is we can't lose sight of the self reflectiveness of it. And so the main character in Get Out is a photographer. And it's mm. and it's sort of like saying it's like not just about who is in the picture, but who's taking the picture. Uh, and that's, that's really important. I think you're, you're When we're especially talking about who the director is. Yes.
0: And, you know, first-time director, and he's named in the Best Directing category. I want to move on to whether Oscar So White can have some impact on Latinos who are still effectively shut out. And yet, just so people understand, that's the largest movie-going audience, and it's as though Hollywood has said— well, you're already coming, so we don't really have to say anything to you or address any of this. There is going to be a demonstration, says Alex Nogales, president of the National Hispanic Media Coalition. And he said um, before, they've tried to be less hostile, but they're going to be right out front this time. What do you think?
2: Yeah, so a couple of pieces of this. I'm, I'm glad you raised this, and we can't underscore this enough. Latino people are responsible for the commercial viability of the movie industry. Without these consumers, there is no movie industry as we know today. The industry is in crisis. We can't ignore that fact. So that's, that's one piece of it. Second, it's interesting that some of the objection raised to it and the action that we might see forthcoming is coming on the media side because these two things go hand in hand, right? Media coverage and the critical voice around the film industry and the content of the film industry. And when you get shut out of both places, you're in trouble as a consumer or as someone who wants to see himself or herself or their self represented on the screen. So, I think the Latino community has been uh, diplomatic about this for long enough, and there is a wave cresting because of the Oscar so White phenomenon. But it just goes to show that racial progress in one arena or one venue or with one group does not mean we have something like equal representation or adequate representation for all consumers and adequate power and opportunities for everybody who wants to get in the business. Representation is one thing, but the opportunity structure of the business is another, and clearly Latinos have been shut out systematically let me point out
0: that in this film and uh, in this i'm sorry in this piece in the new york times they you know interview a couple of executives who are not named and they say it's just so hard everybody wants to be represented now rachel i mean this is just i mean what are we supposed to do that's their response to the to the latinos coming forward right. saying what are
1: you talking about and it's not and and, <laughs> and you know it's obviously a It's not just about, you know, who's being represented. It's about who's doing the represented. It's about how they're being represented. You know, so it's like, yes, it's going to take us a long time to sort of confront this culturally. And one of the things that brings me down about it is, you know, Hollywood's in Southern California. Like there are tons and tons of Latinx people in Southern California. So it's like sort of created this little separate world for itself physically as well as on screen and, you know, again, to go back to the Oscars this year, I do think that is something that Guillermo del Toro was taking up mm, in his mm, movie. Mm. It's the Shape a, of Water. The Shape of Water, Which sorry. Which is nominated
0: in in the most categories this and, year.
1: And it's, and it's wonderful. Mm. And it, But it also, again, reminds us not to be that literal. And so the movie is about a main character who's t- sort of presented as a monster. And then the American power structure, you know, in this case, like all these rich, you know, white men want to kill him because he's a monster. When somebody like Guillermo del Toro is making that movie in the white film industry, then we have to remember Mm. it's not necessarily literal.
0: I just want to point out, uh, to put a button on this conversation, is that the article in the New York Times by Brooks Barnes referenced an essay that Chris Rock wrote in 2014. This is before he hosted during the, the height of the Oscar So White crisis. He wrote, forget whether Hollywood is black enough. A better question is, is Hollywood Mexican enough? You're in L.A. You've got to try not to
1: hire Mexicans. Right. There you go. So I that's, thought that was a real that's a, a great that's quote. That's exactly what I w- was trying to say. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Well, moving on. The Grammys are coming up. They are this weekend. We won't get to know what they are by the time this show airs. But Jay-Z is scheduled to receive the Glad Media Award uh, for Smile. And I, I mention that because he's also nominated for 444, his big album, which made a lot of other notable news. And when I first heard it, I have to say, I thought, isn't he one of those people that are, have those homophobic lyrics in his work and it turns out that it's very difficult to find that in his there's a lot of other stuff going on with Jay-Z but very early on there was some and then it went away and maybe it has to do with the fact that his song Smile is about his mother who is a lesbian and he came to grips with this, you know, as a person and then as an artist much later. So, I'd love to get your response, Rachel.
1: Yes, well, I'm very very grateful to him for making the song about his mother and I would also like to say that I do think hip-hop sort of overall is moving away from, you know, the no homo thing, right, which was when a rapper would say something loving about another man. They would always say, no homo. I don't mean it that way. But now there are, in addition to Jay-Z's, you know, very moving song, there are also, you know, more and more rappers who are out as gay themselves. And I think that there's an important shift happening. And definitely he's part of it. Hmm. Uh, Michael.
2: Yeah, no question about it. I'm glad you've raised the point of the increasing number of rappers and people in the hip hop industry who have been able to come out as queer, gay, lesbian, uh, whatever identity market they want to claim. What the next step is, I think, certainly in hip hop and, of course, in other areas of popular culture, is to get a range of representations of these experiences so that we don't just have one commercially successful ambassador Uh, highlighting a figure in his life for the sake of visibility. But now we're getting different kinds of narratives Mm. from people like Angel Hayes or Tyler, the Creator. These are two hip-hop artists who have wildly different experiences and relationships to their own queerness, but if you listen to their music, they're really bringing something new and fresh and vulnerable to the table, and that's a truer representation of what LGBTQ life actually is, not just one kind of exemplary experience for the sake of inclusion, but a range of experiences that shows uh, the multiple ways we all live our lives.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Rachel Rubin, Professor of American Studies at UMass Boston, and Michael Jeffries, you just heard him, Associate Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. And we're discussing the latest in pop culture news. Now, continuing on the LGBTQ audience changing perspectives, more generally mainstream thing, RuPaul's Drag Race, which I think a lot of people may not know about. RuPaul, maybe folks know, is a drag queen guy when he's not working as he is. He only puts on the drag costume when he is working. But anyway, it's a very popular show called RuPaul's Drag Race. First, let's hear a clip so people can know what we're talking about. Here it is.
2: Miss Fane. Green goddess.
1: I love the shoulder pads.
2: Those
3: aren't shoulder pads. Those are her shoulders. (laughs) (laughs) Katya. Emerald City Fashion Week. (laughs) Yes, honey, she is
2: serving green legs and ham.
0: Now, you heard RuPaul, and that was a clip from the judging panel from RuPaul's Drag Race, which is a very popular show. The reason we're raising this is because none other than Nancy Pelosi, former Speaker of the House and now minority leader, Democratic minority leader, is going to be a judge on that very show. So let's listen to a clip from Good Morning America delivering the news that Nancy Pelosi will be on the latest season of RuPaul's Drag Race.
2: The first female Speaker of the House has been
0: appointed to the bench for the upcoming season of RuPaul's Hit Show, which premieres January 25th.
1: Pelosi tweeted in part, all I can say is, you better work.
0: (laughs) Okay, Rachel, what does this mean? Well,
1: one thing that I think is sort of useful about it is it reminds us how much of our political system is now performativity. And Mm. for better and for worse, right? Because there are people, politicians who speak very movingly, you know, in front of the House or Senate. So it sort of makes my mind go and say, you know what, actually, that is a kind of drag, right? They're sort of putting on a face. And you you have to be good at it to be a politician, as well as having, you know, content. Lay and bear the device, as they say in literary theory.
0: So, Michael, why now? Why would Nancy Pelosi... You know, there are many shows she could guess, guess judge on, but she chose RuPaul's Drag Race.
2: Uh, yeah, I've been turning this one over in my <laughs> mind as well because it doesn't seem like a natural fit, just given her her personality from what we know of her time in D.C. But I think this is a fraught time in politics and Democrats and Democratic leadership have been playing a bit of a cat and mouse game where they will very strongly resist and put up a front against whatever the GOP is trying to do and then kind of pull back and be more reticent but in the realm of popular culture they can make bolder statements that aren't necessarily likely to draw the ire of their mm. of their opponents in Washington so this is a place where she as a figure representative of the Democratic Party can position herself clearly in alignment with a certain demographic right mm. LGBTQ demographic, a younger demographic, even though the show has been on for a long time, kind of position themselves as kind of the party of the future-looking kind of pop-culturally savvy generation without having to make an explicit political statement about it. And I would say one more thing about this. The visibility of trans people specifically, not that, Mm. you know, RuPaul is is a professional character in addition to being a, a drag queen, right? But the visibility of trans people specifically has really picked up recently. We talked about the Oscar situation, mm-hmm. there were two, I believe, trans nominees this year, and what is a first for the Academy, including uh, Yance Ford, who's a trans man, as did the documentary Strong Island about his experience uh, with his family and police brutality and racism in New York City. So, when we talk about LGBTQ, again, let's talk about the diversity of experiences mm-hmm. yes. and what does it mean to have such trans visibility at this time, beyond just and lesbian visibility.
1: No, I think that's absolutely true, but I do think we can't take it out of the context that our president was like on a reality TV show. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to be a thing if you know what I mean. It's Mm -hmm. like a way people are getting attention.
0: I would also say That will be the first time many people will know the name of the minority leader of the Democratic Party, (laughs) because I'm going to guess that a lot of people
1: do not know. Oh, interesting point. Yeah, right? and, And I guess that is another reason to be doing it. I can be fun, too.
0: People say I'm not a fun person, but I can be fun, too. I guess that's what it's saying, among many other things. Well, in the same context, a very popular show that was really groundbreaking in its time called... Queer Eye for the Straight Guy is coming back in a new form with a new cast. And first, let's hear a clip from the trailer of the new season of Queer Eye, which is going to be on Netflix.
2: The original show was fighting for tolerance. Our fight is for acceptance. I'd like the Fat Five to help me get out of my comfort zone. I'm married for five are you the husband or the wife? Um, let's break that down.
0: down. That, that is a misconception. Yeah, <laughs> let's unpack
2: that. We all got to come together in a way where we can understand each other. Game straight. A common thread that holds every human together is that we just want to be loved.
0: This is fascinating to me. It was very popular. It became very popular. It was controversial at first. The cast is now well integrated into mainstream other shows and into pop culture. So what do you think, Michael?
2: Just from the, the brief clip that we heard, mm-hmm. it sounds like the temperature of the show is going to be a bit different from the original version the original version was very performative almost kind of purposefully over the top and it seemed less willing to explicitly talk about the gender politics that it was performing and unpacking even as they were right there in front of us on the screen just in what we heard right now it sounds like there may be some (laughs) tongue-in-cheek going on but they're at least willing to address some of these issues around love partnership, mistaken assumptions about gender roles. And if those things happen under the cover of uh, another kind of fun show, I I think that's a step in the right direction. The reboot sounds promising.
1: Rachel? Yeah, I absolutely think it is like a very common artistic strategy to sort of pull people in and then when you have their attention you can be much more daring so you know as with a lot of television shows like sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between commodifying somebody's experience and sort of like respecting somebody's experience but there's like a little hope for both ways there.
0: I think what, you know, people have to remember is that the breakthrough was that they were dealing with straight guys and that that is a repeat in the new show. And that still is, to your point earlier about the rapper saying, no homo, just, you know. So I can remember so many of the shows ending with the straight guys after they've been helped by the queer guys saying, wow, this is like the first interaction I've had on a human to human level in this way with a gay guy. And I didn't feel threatened or weirded out or whatever. So that was... Fascinating. And I guess it'll continue in this way at this time of very fraught sexual politics. I think that'll be very interesting to see. And it's a younger cast, too, by the way. So there's another demographic they're trying to hit. All right, changing now to Ursula Le Guin, famed science fiction and fantasy writer. She died at 88 this week, Rachel, and you pointed out to us that this was a a huge loss. And actually, after I realized uh, the names of some of her books, I realized I knew who she was, even though I'm not sure I've read her work. So for people who didn't know, The Dispossessed, The Left Hand of Darkness, and the one that WGBH made a television production of was The Lathe of Heaven. So talk about Ursula de Guin and her
1: impact in the genre of speculative fiction. She was one of like the the people, I don't know even how to put it, who built the house that other writers could live in. She was creative and like compelling, but she was also very always very clear both within her fiction and out that she was sort of devoted to social justice and, and you know healthy sort of societal development. So I I just feel like, you know, it's funny because one of the things that makes me so sad about her passing is how important she was in these ways. But on the other hand, like she was acknowledged as that and she shaped what came behind her. And that, I guess, makes me less sad in some ways.
0: Well, uh, for people who don't know that the term speculative fiction – mean, science fiction to the rest of us.
1: <laughs> so, so. Sorry, I'm yeah. sorry. So no, no, people no. Within that, that's the, the correct people title. Within it, yeah, people yeah. and it combines science fiction <laughs> and fantasy. So it's like and and she did too in some ways, right? So it's like it's a broader term. And for women,
0: it's always been a struggle in that space anyway. So that's another reason why uh, her work stood out. And I and you know, as I, I said,
1: she was explicitly feminist. You know, she right. was. Wonderful in that regard. So, I see, I, when strong. I read
0: about this, her passing, I immediately thought of Octavia Butler, who was the first black woman in that space. Oh, so. same thing. Yeah,
1: exactly. I, I was just as sad when she died. Right.
0: Uh, Michael, did you know about Ursula de Guin?
2: You know, I wasn't familiar with mm. her writing, but the point that you raise about. The legacies she left behind and the place of women in this particular genre, I, I think that's one that we can all kind of hold on to right now. And we've we've seen an outpouring of attention and affection for Octavia Butler. And it also made me think back to uh, the kind of erasure of Sophia Stewart, who was the woman who wrote the original books that became the Matrix movie franchise. Mm-hmm. And there are so many of these kinds of stories. The women who are the creators of these ideas, of these worlds that, that fans identify with and imagine themselves as being a part of, they don't seem to be har- heralded and held up with the same regard as someone like Tolkien or the creator of Game of Thrones. And that's, I think, the next step is not just in their passing, but but in their life to elevate their art and give them the celebration that they actually deserve.
1: Well, well and I do think there's a, like a strong move in that direction. you know, science fiction conventions now always yeah. have like statements on the websites about, you know, not excluding certain people, even explicitly trans people and yeah,
0: And I would say, and I'm not a Hunger Games fan, but that's the author of that series is a woman. She probably couldn't have done any of this without having a path made for her by the Ursula Le Guin's and the Octavia Butler's. So there is all of that going. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Rachel Rubin and Michael Jeffries, our pop culture contributors. And we're talking about pop culture news you may have missed. HQ trivia, Michael. Are you into it? Are you doing it? Why is it so hot?
2: I have absolutely <laughs> no idea. You know, trivia is an interesting one, though, because I think that it started out as kind of a niche idea for a certain crowd right? A, an upwardly mobile, well-educated crowd, but you've seen its kind of popularity explode and become I think about Trivial Pursuit and the kind of memories I had of my parents and people of their generation playing that game too, and then the trivia culture in bars, certainly around Boston and Cambridge, mm-hmm. there's no shortage of, of trivia nights but now I think it's moved into the mainstream in a way that's become really interesting the format and the kind of spirit of trivia, even if it's not actual trivia, so games like Cards for Humanity, for example, which is not a trivia game, right? It's a party game, but it has the spirit of the kind of trivia inside of it. And I think that's part of what we're seeing here is uh, the industry is exploding because the grassroots of the trivia culture is so strong.
0: And pardon me, I did not explain what it was for people going, well, what is it? Okay, so it, it appears twice a day on your phone and millions of people are playing it and you have to answer 12 questions within 10 seconds. And if you get it, then you get a very little money. (laughs) But people are really, really excited about it. I just saw this uh, YouTube clip, uh, Rachel, of a woman who won the game and she's screaming like she won the lottery because the questions are really tough and they tap into all areas of trivia. So you have to sort of be a a master of mini arenas and it's very, very popular. There's some criticism of the people who made the app, but the popularity is something
1: else. Yes. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, I still have my flip phone. So you can't I do can't it on Flip, it. I can't and, do or it. Or Androids. It's only iPhones. Um, Go on. <laughs> I can't. But um there's definitely been this burst of attention and I'm wondering how long it will last. What was the phone, the game of people playing on their phones that had them like out in the world? We talked about oh, it. Pokemon Go. Was it? Okay. Yes, yes. So, so Pokemon Go was like everywhere, and then it was suddenly gone. And, I, I you know, <laughs> I do think that we have these little, little bursts of popularity. I want to say what the questions are.
0: Do they really tap into something? Or do are they, they tap just, into something yeah.
1: valuable? Hmm. Do they, you know, reaffirm what's sort of mainstream? I would like to see people sort of pushed.
0: All I can tell you is that twice a day, once at 9 p.m., and I guess the other time is at 3 p.m., 3 p.m. and 9 p.m., you can bet in many offices stuff is slowed down no doubt huge <laughs> where people no are doing no doubt this. i
1: don't want to teach during those hours right <laughs>
0: <laughs> These people are doing it all right we have talked about black panther the movie coming out and many times leading up to its actual debut in uh, next month but here's the thing that i just find fascinating the advance ticket sales are off the charts I can say personally, I got the second to the last two seats for me and my friend at Superlux the day after the first day. So that's how—and that was weeks ago. What do you think about it? This is amazing. It's, they've topped the record.
1: It gives <laughs> me such a lift. Actually, I will say it gives me such a lift, even without having seen the movie. And I hope when I see it, it doesn't take away that lift. But one of the things about it is it's like rewriting history. It's right. It's looking back and saying, like, that was racist. We're going to make it different now and i think that is so valuable
0: so a note that lapita Nuongo could not get a ticket because she was telling people make sure you get your tickets and then she failed to get one so she didn't get an advance ticket and she's in the movie
2: <laughs> <laughs> just so everybody knows michael what do you think we've never seen anything like it i mean it's <laughs> it's become a cultural event and if you're in the film business, that's what you want it to be, right? Not just a piece of art that kind of stands on its own, but a requirement among anyone's friend group, your friend group, my friend group, <laughs> Rachel's. If you haven't seen this, we can't hang out anymore. <laughs> that's <laughs> true. That's, that's true. what this movie is going to be. I
1: hope, I, I, and, and I hope it's worth it. I hope it's worth it, too. I will note that, and I wish I had
0: the exact tweet, but Jelani Cobb, um, who is a political social analyst of some note, months ago wrote, here's what I'm wearing to the premiere of
2: Panther. <laughs> well, this is a big part of it. There, I've seen on social media all kinds of people dressing up and posting their outfits. You mentioned the costume dimensions of this kind of science fiction world. Uh, that's a huge, huge part of it. We should expect the costumes to be on the level of Star Wars. Do you remember when the Star Wars films oh, yeah. came yes. out oh, yes. and people yes. were waiting yes. in line? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, all kinds of storms. But nobody's seen
1: this
0: when That happened after the first one. And is the this Harry Potter movies, yes. too. Yes, right. yes. Yeah. That's true. Yeah.
2: People are ready. It's
1: a worthwhile reminder that the meanings of movies are created in all these different places. That's true. Including among audiences.
0: Well, I wanted to note that Neil Diamond stepped away from the mic um, this past week and said he announced that he had Parkinson's disease and that he was immediately uh, retiring from touring. And just to get both of you all to speak to his legacy in the business, the music business, I mean, he's hugely popular and remains so. His tours were all sold out, so they're having to cancel some of the back ends. And also, it's doubly poignant to me because Glenn Campbell just died and he continued to try to tour as much as he could um, until it just was too hard for him. So, Rachel, you're a big music person. Neil Diamond's legacy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know, one of the things that I find especially moving about culture is that people, like, create their meanings out of different things. So I don't listen to Neil Diamond, mm-hmm. but other people do. And somehow the fact that there's, you know, there's these different approaches and different tastes and stuff, it gets me really emotional. Mm. So uh, that's one thing. Um, it's hard for me to get past the fact that he blacked up in the re- remake of Jazz Singer.
3: Mm,
0: mm, he wore blackface. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I should yes, put that more straight yes. out there.
1: So that is like a stumbling block for me. But otherwise, you know, he has his audiences and they get what they need from him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's moving. That's what culture is. If everybody likes the same thing, And I start to get anxious that we're being pushed into boxes. And a lot of his work,
0: Michael. Um, whether you think you like him or not is just so much... Talk about trivia. If somebody put <laughs> questions about his music... Um, so many people could answer them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah,
2: he's a pop culture icon. He really is. He <laughs> comes from a folk music tradition and moved moved away from more of a kind of classic folk background into more of a pop background and has become... It, it, it's, his work has spanned generations. And I think one of the things that's significant about this is he was still working, right? He has to be pulled off of tour. And you think about the career of someone like Tom Petty, who recently had the overdose and he was still touring and all these older acts who have continued to play shows so deep into their careers it it speaks to the power of uh, music as a, a truly collective experience that they still get so much out of it right the power of performance not just producing something that can be recorded commodified and sold but that human connection that these people thrive on they live they live on it. They live on stage, um, so it's hard. It's hard to leave that behind. Not because of the money or the fame, uh, but because of the collective experience that we get in sharing music with with each other. I was uh, reading an an article about another artist recently who said, you
0: know, how what a thrill it was to to just pause in the middle of a song and hear the whole audience singing the words. And I have to say that Neil Diamond's song, Sweet Caroline, of course, has become something that uh, Red Sox fans sing. So that was also a big tribute to him. ¶¶ So people who are thinking Neil Diamond, I don't know him. Yeah, you do. Sweet Caroline at Red Sox games is right there among his many other songs. So um, I wish him well. I hope he, you know, is able to have a happy life, even if he's not touring and not performing, because he has left behind such a good um, canon of work. All right. Well, I thank you both for joining me.
1: Thank, thank you, Callie.
0: You. Michael Jeffries is an associate professor of American Studies at Wellesley College, and Rachel Rubin is a professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Coming up, his story sounds like true crime fiction. In fact, the twists and turns in the journey of former New England patriot Aaron Hernandez from superstar to convicted murderer seems too fantastic to be true, except it is real. So who better to tell the story than James Patterson, best-selling author of pulse-pounding thrillers, Next, James Patterson joins me to talk about his new book, All-American Murder, The Rise and Fall of Aaron Hernandez, the superstar whose life ended on death row. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Crossley and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra.
3: You hear stories about the fall from grace Man, this might be one of the most tragic of all time. Guilty of murder in the first degree. This has got to be a mistake.
0: That, that's not the Aaron that I know. That's a clip from the 48-hour special about Aaron Hernandez, former superstar football player turned convicted murderer. The CBS special was produced in conjunction with the latest book by best-selling author James Patterson. All-American Murder, The Rise and Fall of Aaron Hernandez, the superstar whose life ended on death row, traces Aaron's early life to the days after his jail cell suicide in Boston last April. Patterson and his co-authors, Alex Abramovich and Mike Harvkey delve deep to uncover details and to connect the dots in Hernandez's chaotic past. Readers know James Patterson for his beloved fictional series like the Women's Murder Club and characters like Michael Bennett and the enduring Alex Cross. His legions of fans worldwide have made his books perennial bestsellers, allowing Patterson to give more than a million books to school kids and millions of dollars for education and for teacher scholarships. James Patterson joins me now from Saturn Sound Studios in West Palm Beach, Florida. James, welcome to Under the Radar.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Well, this is an exciting book, and I know people always speak in terms of your books as being page-turners, and this definitely is one. You've done it again, but this is a nonfiction story, and this is not usually the kind of story that you tell. You make up stories, and I'd just love you to speak first about why you decided to do this story.
3: Well, I, I think there are a lot of things. I, I feel that this is the most dramatic murder story and certainly national murder story uh, you know, in terms of one being picked up by the media that way in the last 25 years. And I include O.J. in that. If O.J. had committed the murder in Buffalo where he played, you know, where his pro career was, I think it would have gone away eventually. But because it was in L.A., because it was Hollywood, because the Dream Team got pulled in— it became a much bigger story. I think that the Hernandez thing is much more complicated, much more interesting, much more dramatic, much much more tragic. I was totally intrigued. I love to tell stories, and I I just felt I had to tell this one, and that I could structure it and write it in scenes so that it it really, the, the, the drama really would be very powerful for readers.
0: There are so many things that are interesting, but this is what struck me as I was preparing for this conversation. We're are talking a few days after the New England Patriots beat the Minnesota Vikings for the chance at another. Oh, sorry. They beat the okay. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Producers yeah, the irony
3: me. of right now yeah. is that you know that here here are the Patriots. You know they just beat the Jaguars and they're headed to another Super Bowl.
0: And so my point is that there's Rob Gronk, there's Tom Brady, there's a whole other cast of well-known characters that would have been on the field with Aaron Hernandez if things had yeah. gone very differently.
3: Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's
0: kind of well, mind-blowing to think about.
3: <laughs> well, I, Urban Meyer said it, and I agree. Urban Meyer had been Hernandez's coach at the University of Florida. He's now the coach at Ohio State. He said he, it was the, the biggest fall from grace he's ever seen, and it really was. I mean, you get a guy, he's, he's a very handsome guy. He can be articulate when he wants to be. He's got this Hollywood smile, dimple, uh, $40 million contract beautiful fiancé who would they've been together since high school little baby you know McMansion he's got everything going for him and then it goes up in a puff of smoke.
0: I think that a lot of people here in Boston may think they know the whole story but one of the things that really struck me about your telling of it was his early life and how much he was either shaped by that or not shaped as the case may be as we learned as years passed in the telling of his story but the one person that was so key to his, really, outlook, his, his values and, his, and everything when he was a young kid was his father.
3: Things may have changed totally in terms of uh, he was very close to his father. Aaron's father had been a big star. He, was, he played for University of Connecticut. He was known as the king in their hometown. And um, when Aaron was 16, his father went in for a hernia operation, you know, minor operation. His father died. And his father had really guided and held Aaron very responsible for, Aaron and his brother responsible for their actions. Had he not died, I don't know that this would have happened. After the father died, I think Aaron started hanging out more with people up in Connecticut that he shouldn't have. That pattern continued when he went down to the University of Florida. I think Urban Meyer did a great job of watching over him, as much as you could ever expect any kid to be watched over. I mean, he did Bible studies with him several times a week. He had him to the house. He insisted that Tim Tebow be Aaron's roommate on the road and that he lived next door to Tebow while while they were at the university. So I think Urban did what he could. And I think Urban understood that it was really important that he operate as a father figure for Aaron.
0: Well, let's talk about that relationship with uh, Tim Tebow and the assignment that Urban Meyer asked of Tim Tebow in terms of keeping an eye on Aaron. First of all, Aaron was really young when he got to Florida, which startled me. I don't think I understood how young yeah. he was through all Aaron
3: of this. Aaron was 17 when he got to Florida. And Aaron, when he went to the NFL, was the youngest player in the NFL when he went. He was 19 when he, when he went to the Patriots camp initially.
0: So I'd love you to read some from the book about Tim Tebow and Aaron when he was at Florida.
3: Yeah. One of the interesting things about the Tebow thing is I really tried my best to get to talk to Tim. And I did talk to him a couple of times and he was very polite, but he just wouldn't do it. And we had him. He was down here in Florida. He was a mile from my house and I could not breakthrough to get him to talk about it. Gronkowski was the same way. He wouldn't talk about Aaron either. Not exactly sure why. I don't know if the, the Patriots wouldn't talk to us and, um, and the NFL wouldn't talk to us. I think it may have had to do with the lawsuits and maybe the, just the complications of CTE, and you know that obviously scares them. At any rate, here's a little piece from the book. Coach Meyer, which is Urban Meyer down in Florida, did what he could to minimize the damage What that meant for Aaron Hernandez, in particular, was that Tim Tebow was assigned to keep an eye on the hot-headed player. Tim and Aaron could not have been much more different. Tebow was the youngest of five children, all of whom had been homeschooled by their deeply religious parents. While Tebow's teammates in Florida partied, fought, got high, and spent time in strip clubs, he struck to the straight Christian path he had followed since boyhood. The quarterback was clean-cut, clean-spoken, open about being a virgin, and saving himself for marriage. Tebow sang hymns on the sidelines, and on the field he dropped down to one knee, bowed his head, and prayed after victories. Before long, the phrase Tebowing would enter into the national vocabulary. It involved striking the same kneeling pose. Tim wrote references to Bible verses in his eye black. When the NCAA passed a rule that banned players from writing such messages, it became known as the Tebow rule. Like Hernandez, Tebow was an especially versatile player, six foot three, physical, a dual-threat quarterback who was as likely to run with the ball as he was to pass it. And if Hernandez had been an exceptional player in high school, Tebow— had been even better.
0: What stood out for me in that, as a person that did not follow this very, very closely, I didn't know all of Aaron Hernandez's relationships, certainly not his early relationships, I didn't know that about Tim Tebow and didn't realize how close they were. But the other part of it is, is that here were two guys who were so different, but their athletic ability was considered to be outstanding. Now, Tebow, as you said in the book, was even better, but what I didn't understand in, in, in what, high
3: school, Yes. It, he was better in better in high school. Urban Meyer, <clears throat> the coach of Florida, said that he felt, in fact, when the, when the Patriots, he was he's close to Belichick, and when they asked him about Hernandez, he said that he felt that Hernandez was the best player he ever had at Florida, but he said you have to stay on top of him.
0: Well, here's the thing that I didn't get entirely about how good he was. And I want to play a clip from the CBS uh, 48 Hours special, and this, by the way, was produced by Jamie Stoltz. Here's former University of Florida head football coach Urban Meyer talking about Aaron Hernandez and his outstanding athletic abilities.
3: He was a truly intelligent player. He was a guy that you would go into the game saying, he's one of the best players in America, get him the ball. He was ridiculous. He was the best tight end in America. He was that good. That's saying a lot in a 31-year career, saying I've never seen one like him. Football meant everything to him. He was very committed to it. His focus was on point. Loved the game.
0: But there were all of these dark forces, James Patterson, because the absence of his dad meant, it seems, from what you've said in the book, that he was just open to all kinds of stuff from his hometown in Bristol that he never perhaps would have been a part of if his dad had lived.
3: No, and Urban talked about that. He said that every time that Hernandez would go back to Connecticut for a period, he would come back to Florida and be changed. In other words, they would have you know done a pretty good job with him down there. He would go back up, start hanging out with some of these people in Connecticut, and fall back into his old ways. I always thought that that the CTE thing was a little too simple in terms of explaining what happened. I mean, for me, I think it's pretty clear that at least to me, that Hernandez had psychopathic tendencies. I mean, there are other people that suffer from CTE and brain damage. We're not aware of any who have become murderers, and he did. So there was that streak with him. There was a lot of drug use, PCP, coke, uh, a lot of weed, and the CTE, which clearly you know, seemed to have played a part.
0: Just to remind people that CTE is the brain disease that has been determined by a number of scientists, including those here at BU. And after his death, uh, they examined his brain, Aaron Hernandez's brain, and Dr. Annette McKee said that she had never seen this much damage done in a person so young. And what they are now trying to determine is if there is a way to figure out what happens while you are living that may or may not impact um, how you respond. Uh, And so what you're referring to is that that's not clear yet. Yes.
3: Yeah, no, it isn't. But I mean, there's directionally, there, there's certainly uh, there, there's a lot of implications that they I think they could make. But in recent, in the last week or so, they did studies on four uh, teenagers who had died, who had played football, and they found brain damage in all of those brains as well, even though none of them had ever nothing reported about them having concussions. So uh, you know, everybody, people are gonna. This is going to affect the NFL for a long time, how they deal with, you know, the game. The game is going to have to change. And, and it also affects, you know, affects sports like hockey, rugby, certainly, soccer to some extent, and even maybe some of the drills that, that they put, you know, the military goes through. So, you know, head injuries are very serious, and, and, and we're finally really beginning to understand how much damage can be done and what the effects are.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is James Patterson, whose latest book is All-American Murder, The Rise and Fall of Aaron Hernandez, the superstar whose life ended on death row. So now let's talk about the quote-unquote dark side of Aaron and his connections in Bristol, Connecticut. They seem shocking, I have to say, uh, reading them on the page. But it makes more sense at the end when you start thinking, because I could not get my head around, why is he in a courtroom for murder? And then you read in your book the details of who he was hanging around with in Bristol, Connecticut.
3: Well, you know, yes, uh, he, he hung out with some kind of potentially bad people there. Drugs were definitely in his life, certainly, you know, once he was at University of Florida and going back to Connecticut. He seemed to be a pretty straight kid, relatively straight in high school. Didn't seem to be much trouble. Certainly not. people didn't spot it much. Uh, you know, something went wrong there. Here's what you
0: also brought out and that people are still grappling with. And perhaps this has something to do with why certain people wouldn't speak to you. It seems as though there were two sides to Aaron. So much of what you write in your book from people who say, he's the sweetest guy, he's the greatest guy. And then others said, but he could turn on a dime, and that's not the Aaron that I know. So after you have done all this work, who do you think Aaron is? Because it seems that he was Jekyll and Hyde in some ways.
3: I think he kept changing over time, and I think that's an evidence that the CTE and the drug use were really having a bad effect. You know, look, I mean, the the, the murder of, of Owen Lloyd... That's the murder he was convicted of. This just makes no sense what happened. I mean, he killed this guy who was a friend of his. He killed him less than a mile from his house, which is crazy. Why would you do that? He left four shells right by the body, which is crazy. Uh, He left his cell phone in, in Odin's pocket with his phone calls to him on the phone he left car keys to a rent-a-car. There were an Aaron's name in his pocket. When he was leaving this area, he put a couple of, of shots into a road sign. So, I mean, clearly at that point, the guy was very confused. And how much of it is CT and how much of it is drugs, who knows? But, I mean, this is a, a chaotic—and and it seems like he was planning to kill this guy You know, all day. He called two of his friends from Connecticut and had them come up and accompany him in the car.
0: And over and over, there are many examples in the book of how the slightest thing could set him off. Here's a piece that I'd love you to read, which really sort of gets to the two sides of Aaron. It begins on page 115, and this is in Chapter 29 of All-American Murder.
3: But even a coach as controlling as Belichick was could not control everything. And as Belichick would learn, Aaron Hernandez presented a special set of challenges— Aaron was mercurial, immature, full of himself, but also fragile in ways that made his actions impossible to predict. In the locker room, he was sweet and charming, a reporter named Rappaport says. Sweet is a weird way to describe a man, but that's what he was, a sweet, endearing guy when he wanted to be. But the other part of it was that emotionally he was a wreck. It was not abnormal for him to burst into tears when he made a bad mistake. If he got humiliated in the meeting room, sometimes he would cry. That's not really normal behavior. Over time, Rappaport and Hernandez developed a connection. In the locker room, I would hang out by his locker a lot, the reporter recalls. He was always accessible. Never a great interview because he was careful about what he said, but he and I got along. At one point, I shot a video for him, something his cousin was doing. He told me some stuff. We exchanged information, and he said, Look, you're my guy in the locker room. If I'm ever going to talk to anyone, it's going to be you. I said, Cool, man. I respect you, too. And he said, But I just want to tell you, because I'm big on trust, if you ever f*** me over, I'll kill you. I kind of laughed, but he was not joking. I looked at a reporter buddy of mine who was standing there eavesdropping. He gave me this weird look. I said, all right, all right, I'll see you later, man. But later on, when Aaron got picked up, I got a text from that other reporter. Remember that day in the locker room? I guess he was serious. I was like, yep, yes, he was.
0: That's James Patterson reading from his latest All-American Murder, The Rise and Fall of Aaron Hernandez, the superstar whose life ended on death row. It's a nonfiction account of the life and death of Aaron Hernandez. That was just a chilling moment in the book when I read that, and I thought, whew. And as we go along in the book and we read so many other incidents that I don't think everybody knew, I mean, it sort of was like here was Aaron Hernandez. He was a superstar in high school. He made it to Florida. He's a superstar there. He goes to the NFL. Yay. And the next thing you know, he's on trial for murder. It's sort of whiplash. It doesn't make sense.
3: The book does put it all together, and you know clearly there have been interviews and there have been pieces and papers. But this is a 380-page examination of everything about this guy from his days as a high school star in Connecticut down through you know University of Florida, and then, and then right up until his suicide. You know, while I was writing the book, one he was declared innocent of the double murder in Boston. That was while the book was going on. That was the first bombshell that happened, you know, after I'd already decided to do the book. And then secondly, the suicide, which was unbelievable. My lawyer called me and he said, you're not going to believe what happened. And I said, what? He said, you know, Hernandez killed himself. Well, you've been
0: quoted saying, if you made this up for one of your characters, people would have thought you'd gone too far.
3: Yeah, no, they would. I mean, they'd say, James, you lost it. This is too much. You're, You're over the top. This could not work in an Alex Cross novel.
0: So, of all the surprising things that you uncovered while doing this, and I should say you were also the correspondent on the 48 Hours uh, CBS special, what did you find surprising?
3: I was just knocked out one by the just the incredible fall from grace. Also, how impressive this guy was in so many ways. He had so much going for him. I really wasn't aware of that as much. I, I mean, I'd watched him on the football field. I knew what an extraordinary talent he was this you know he's so strong and so big and yet he was you know, he had moves like a basketball player which is hugely unusual i knew about that i just didn't know that much about him and and how impressive he was in other ways and how much he was going to burn up
0: now sometimes when we hear these stories these fall from grace stories people say you know this is a cautionary tale but i'm not sure you can say that with him because it seems so unique. Well, <laughs> I, I
3: think the cautionary tale here is is we really have to, you know, really pay attention to what's going on with football. I think that, you know, families have to really think about, you know, whether they want their kids playing or not. It's definitely dangerous. And, you know, look, when I was a kid, you didn't have the size, you know, and the speed that they have now. You got guys now, they're so big, they're so fast. Getting hit by them is like getting hit by a motorcycle you know, we can build up our bodies, but we don't build up our skull. And that brain just bounces around in there, you know? So that's a little bit of the cautionary tale. And then the other piece of it is, is drugs. The other piece of it is, you know, if you happen to get a little fame, I mean, hubris, I mean, it's don't let it go to your head. I wondered
0: if a part of this story was that those influences, particularly those early influences, the good ones in your life, really are important. And if some of that mooring pulls away you can drown very easily yeah
3: well clearly i mean his father's death had a profound effect on on aaron just profound i mean it doesn't excuse him but that was a shell shock and, and you know i talked about the possibility of psychopathic tendencies i think sometimes when when something like that happens you, you know your belief in everything just uh, disintegrates. You don't believe in God. You don't believe in anything. How could how could there be a God and let my father die of a hernia operation? How could that happen? It's just so unfair. And his father was, a, you know, a terrific guy. His father's funeral. This guy was, you know, wound up being a janitor. Thousands of people came to his father's funeral. That's how well known and beloved he was in that community.
0: Of the work that you did for the CBS special in going out to meet some of these people, some of the real folks. In the journey of uh, Aaron Hernandez, which one will stand out for you the most or continues? Well, the whole
3: thing was it was an incredible experience for me to be in the cell where he killed himself. Uh, You know, this is this cell is like, you know, four, five by seven feet. Um, And he was he was in there. It's nothing. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. 22 and a half hours a day. He was in there. The police in North Attleboro, the, the state trooper, the captain there, they were great. They were terrific. But the person that was the most striking to me was uh, Odin Lloyd's mother, mm. uh, Ursula Ward. And everybody had told me that she was a special person and really great. And she was. She's just a, a a noble lady, just a strong, sweet, and uh, it was unusual because I don't I don't you know do reporting as as my job or my thing I do for my life. But I'm out there, I'm interviewing this woman for 48 hours, and she's crying and I'm crying. And I'm going, oh, man, I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm supposed to be like, you know, 60 minutes and objective and have some distance from the interview. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. Uh, But she was really just a sweet, sweet person. At the trial, you know, after the trial, when it was ended, they, you know, they bring in certain people basically about to influence the sentencing. And she said, I can't show hatred toward this man. She said, if that's the way I'm going to conduct my life, it's just going to have a terrible effect on me. So she said, I have to forgive him.
0: Wow. I note, James Patterson, that your book has been picked up for a movie by the Mark Gordon Company. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. He who had of Saving Private Ryan and Murder on the Orient Express. So. This is kind of a full circle. So you've, you've gone from writing fiction to doing a nonfiction piece to having that be kind of documentary style on 48 Hours and then back to what I guess will be a fictionalized version of, of your book.
3: Well, uh, it won't be fictionalized. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they, they, they tend to take more liberties in Hollywood than I would with the book. But we'll see what happens. He's very good. He makes good films, and uh, he's a very honest Uh, man. I I enjoy dealing with him, so I have high hopes. It won't be fictionalized, but I'm sure they'll take some liberties.
0: Well, whether uh, fiction or nonfiction, you haven't lost your touch. I am not a football fan. I am not a Patriots fan. And I read every page. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me. James Patterson is the author, along with Alex Abramovich and Mike Harvke, of All American Murder, The Rise and Fall of Aaron Hernandez, the superstar whose life ended on death row. The book, produced in conjunction with a CBS 48-hour special, is available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar@wgbh.org. at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugertz. Andrea Aswahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.